Welcome to Medical Expert in Football. I'm Tawa Deshigvin, your host, and I have to say, today may be uncomfortable for many because we're going to be talking about uncomfortable topics like sexual abuse, but these are the conversations that need to happen because in reality, we all can be part of the solution, whether we know it or not. So today's guest is another sports psychologist in the San Francisco Bay Area with over 30 years of experience working with professional and amateur athletes. But her specialty focuses on female teens and adults as she's written two books about women's fight for equal pay and sisterhood in sports. You can check it out on Amazon. Joan Steidinger is her name. We played a number of sports uh, before Title IX came into existence. And it seems that is how you became interested in sports psychology. Is that correct? Yeah, a lot, I'm a lifetime athlete. Well, how did sports translate to you studying psychology? I was always interested in the mental part of sports because one of the things that happened to me in high school is I had probably the worst coach I've ever had in my life. Hmm. And she yelled and screamed, my tennis coach, and I got worse. And a polar opposite to my badminton coach, who was positive and encouraging and all those things. So at 19, I knew I wanted to be a psychologist and help other people. And I had a love of sports because, I mean, I started sports when I was like three and four years old, which in my age group is kind of unusual, but I had two athletic parents. So that made a huge difference. It just so happened that when I came to uh, the Bay Area for my PhD, I did my first internship at Cal State, which was called Cal State Hayward then. And there was a woman there who was a sports psychologist besides being a clinical psychologist. And she was working with swimmers and synchronized swimmers and runners. So she kind of took me under her wings for a year in that internship. And then I was really interested in doing sports psychology. So my next two internships I did were all about bio. I did one in biofeedback for a year long in a school that was analytic. So I was always kind of going against the grain. And then I did cognitive behavioral um, internship for a year. Yeah. Um, back when it wasn't really as well known as it is now. Yeah. Well, you talked about your first coach being such a yeller. That whole experience that you faced during tennis as a youth, did that impact you as you got older and even while you're studying psychology? Or do you feel like you were able to look past that? At the time, no, it took it. I internalized all of it. And it was always what what I was doing wrong. And so I could shift in badminton because the coach was so different and I was number two on the team and I was actually quite good at much better at that I think than tennis but I do think I internalized a lot I was the kind of person that was always trying to help the underdog well of all the areas you studied I saw executive coaching sports psychology performance issues injured athletes, we could go on and on. Of all the areas you've studied so far, which topic has been the most challenging for you personally? Well, I haven't done anything with, well, that's not, that's not even true. I actually was involved in a, a program with um, 
Special Olympians, where we took them when I was on a bike club and we took them on tandems. The problem with me, to be honest with you, Tyler, is that not that I need to find interest, it's I've always been the kind of person who has to narrow my interests because everything interests me about sport. Yeah. With the sexual abuse stuff coming up, I um, have been treating women with sexual abuse issues since the early 80s anyhow. Well, you said you've been working with females and the whole abuse topic for clinicians that may have athletes that come to our clinic. Are there some signs or strategies a clinician can do to pay attention to maybe if an athlete may be experiencing this? Because I think that an athlete may meet so many people along the way while they're going through this very painful and traumatizing experience. And if there's a way that medical providers can be part of the solution, what what do you think could help? Well, I think, you know, someone who's withdrawing, someone who's not socializing and had been previously and isolating, uh, someone who's always got good grades, but now the grades are for college students, the grades are declining. Someone who isn't real happy with their coach and kind of asking them, well, kind of what's going on. Um, I did an assessment for a friend years ago on his, his um, cross-country daughter in college, who's in a small college here. So I'm worried because I think she has an eating disorder. So um, to just slide over to that for a second, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did this assessment on her and she did it. She's an- she was anorexic. And I said, well, maybe I, she goes, well, all the girls are on our team. And I said, well, maybe, you know, I'll tell your coach, I'll come in and talk. She's like, oh no, the coach wants it that way. He doesn't want us to eat. He doesn't want us to like be healthy. And it just was a mind blower to me. But I think this, the sexual abuse stuff, the trouble with detecting it is, is a lot of these perpetrators make these women, young women feel like they're special and they groom them Mm -hmm. to think they're special and to keep it secret. Yeah. If there's any kind of odd behavior unusual behavior for an athlete you might be treating, I would check around a little. Yeah. And you talked about kind of some of those things we can observe Mm -hmm. as a clinician, but you also mentioned about how, if they're unhappy with their coach. So would you recommend clinicians just besides asking, how's your sport going? Or just asking, how's your relationship with your coaches going? Do you think that's a fair question to ask? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And for such, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and, and how's the teamwork going? I might ask that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, because one of the things when there's an abusive coach, a sexually abusive coach, is there won't be as much camaraderie necessarily amongst the girls. Mm-hmm. It'll be a team that is a little more, I think, disjointed and not as close as you'd like a team to be to be effective. Um, So you have to pay attention to that as well. And I think the big thing though, Taiwo, is that it's building, the most important thing I think is when you build trust with the athletes, this is what I've found. 
-hmm. at some point, because it's so much in the media now, they're more likely to come out with it because they can trust you. But I imagine though, that there are some athletes where it's pretty tough to break through them. What strategies have you implemented yourself? Well, one of the things that I do is I let people be themselves and I feel them out for kind of how much I can push them or not. And so my strategy is to kind of push and see what kind of, what can they hear from me direct and what kind of questions might be, make sense to them. And also I really try to check in a lot about their team and their coaches and how they're being treated. And, you know, there was a situation in San Jose State where we just lost an AD because she wasn't paying attention to the fact that somebody had been complained about numerous times. Um, And she's more concerned. I hear from some of the female athletes that she was more concerned about the football team and really looking at the whole broad spectrum of sports that they have at San Jose State. And that's so interesting you say that because even among the professionals, it's not like the complaints weren't sent by email or communicating. Why is this something that still gets overlooked? Well, it's actually against the law. Now, in many states, you're a primary reporter if you're working with kids, period. So if you hear something firsthand, you're required to report it. But I think there's been a lot of secrecy and denial in the old boys network. I think they're partially to blame, to be very direct, particularly the old white boys network. Mm-hmm. And they've covered, I mean, the Nasser case was a, a perfect example of how his behavior had been covered up for decades. Even when um, the head of USA Gymnastics was interviewed, he's like, well, course i didn't report to the police of course not and it's like you, you have a responsibility, you have a responsibility too. Yeah. and and you have a legal responsibility too mm-hmm. for medical providers that suspect this sure they have a responsibility to report it but how can they break this news to say it's a youth parent that has no idea do you recommend them to talk to the parent and just tell oh. them hey this is what i'm seeing before there's any report, I talk to the, the young person, the high school kid, and bring their parents in and work on explaining the situation. And usually, I find most parents are very open to hearing it. Sometimes the teenage girl or, or, or guy is hesitant, but I, we try to practice <laughs> ahead of time prior to their parents coming in, unless it's something horribly acute. And then I just have to report it and call the parents right away. Mm-hmm. What does it look like sitting them down, the parents and the players to open up that conversation? What's that like? Tense yeah. <laughs> and highly <laughs> uncomfortable. But I, I, when I work, I'm very soft-spoken and um try to be really gentle in my words. You know, a lot of people don't really watch their words near enough to be kind in terms of how they address things about, you know, this could, when we're about to talk about, could be really uncomfortable. I'll just prescribe how it's gonna be uncomfortable and hard to discuss, 
and it's very important that you understand where things are. And then I would have um, the uh, athlete tell their parents what they're comfortable with mm-hmm. and, and then explain that this is the kind of thing that needs to be reported. Okay. And it's not easy. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Some parents just don't want to deal with it. And it's like, well, legally, by law, I have to. Yeah. And legally for medical providers, we also have the responsibility to do so as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I know that aside from abuse in general, you also have worked with injured athletes. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about your thoughts because we, as medical providers, as a physical therapist, I often Mm -hmm. have athletes coming to my office that are injured, that are trying to return to their sport. But uh, a lot of times athletes go through a psychological component, whether that's returning to their sport or trusting that they can actually be active again i'm just curious what are some of the most common concerns that athletes that injured athletes may come to your office and share when it comes to getting back to the sport that they did for so long well a lot of them then don't consider themselves athletes and i reframe it for them and say you're just an injured athlete you're still an athlete and we have to look at whatever your injury is whatever the injury is and how long it's going to take or I've had a physical therapist refer to me who had a guy who was doing a lot of long distance running, got a really bad injury. It was Achilles. And um, he had this, he was moving along really well, but he was convinced that they weren't doing enough and then he was not going to get back to running. So she sent him to me because of part of the reason she sent him to me is because I'd been an ultra runner and um, told him that I'm going to be a good person to talk to about it. And we talked about it and we talked about his progress and where he was. And I just, all I did really was reassure him that he'll get back to running. But if he tries to push it too hard, he'll go backwards. And I, and he says, you know, thank you so much. So I gave him a reality check really. And he, he kind of took it all in and. Yep. Did but he... not everybody does. I had yeah. a rug, I had a female rugby player who was trying to make the national team. So she was a high level player. She had a knee injury and I knew her physician and she was doing her rehab, coming talking to me about rugby pretty much part a good part of every session and her physician said, you know, don't go back, be careful, but And I said, we should listen to him. And um, she didn't. And she went back and she injured herself right out of rugby. But what we did is we turned that around into, well, how can you be involved in rugby since you love it so much? And so her plan was to work more with her team, help give tips to, to gals that were new and kind of be a coach on the sidelines and probably ended up being a coach, but she, and then I had another gal who was, had been at the Olympic training center and had a back injury. And um, so she was having trouble really riding at the level she had before. And the word was, this was a career ending injury. And she'd been for a long time at the training center. So I would try to, 
say, okay, how are we going to shift things here? Because you're not going to be writing at the level you were. Well, she'd get her friends around her friends periodically. She did this twice in my treatment of her and go out and ride way too hard and re hurt her back. And then I'd say, you still want to ride, right? Yeah. I said, so you can't ride like you used to ride. And she'd be okay with it for a while. Mm -hmm. And then she'd do the same thing all over again. Um, until it took probably eight months for her to figure out or not figure out to accept yeah. that she wasn't going to be riding at that level anymore. And you mentioned that some athletes need to be reminded that they are an athlete. Why? I guess when, when I have an athlete that comes into my office, this may not be something they express to me, but why do you think athletes experience that loss well it's a huge if they base their whole life around that sport to not be, participating in the sport to not be able to participate means they got to redefine their life and so it's a big can become a very big trauma for them unless they can reframe it. It's kind of like, if you look at the, you know, the pro players, you know, when they retire, they, they're not doing a lot of work to help these guys transition. And it all at some point comes to an end. And, you know, with girls in a lot of sports, the end is college. Um, yeah, because I, I just asked that because I know as a young athlete, I faced a number of injuries, but knowing that I would be back playing, that helped reassured me. But it seems like for some athletes, their definition of who they are may be so wrapped around their sport that it's really hard to uh, think of anything else. Well, when medical providers have these athletes that are experiencing this what strategies can we use in the clinic to make them feel like they are an athlete, whether it's well, talking I, about the sport or introducing a football into a treatment? What would you recommend? Well, I think, like you said, it's acknowledging they are an athlete and talking about their, allowing them to talk about their sports and what they loved about it. What was and what was really worked for them and where they had problem areas so you know that you're understanding your sport because one of the things that i do every time i've gotten a new athlete from a different sport is i go immediately on the internet and really educate myself a lot about their sport so i can understand their language because i think mm -hmm. that's essential yeah, absolutely and that's what's helped me work with a variety of sports uh, over the years it's Allowing them to talk about their sport, it's encouraging them to stick in there, even though it seems hopeless at times in terms of getting better. But the important thing is to persist and persevere and be determined. And hard work comes into rehab. Mm -hmm. And if it looks like they're going to go backwards, I just say, got to get back, get back to rehab, get back to consistency here. And then if they come up against the fact they're not going to do their sport, how can you stay involved? What would you like to do? What could make you feel a part of things? Because we know the sport means so much to you. 
So I have to, I have them do some problem solving around their future if it's not going to involve the participation they've had in the past. And aside from the injured athletes, I think in general, it's good for athletes to have a, not so much of a narrow view of like sports, sports, sport, like have other things. So, you know, for athletes that may not be injured, what are some things that even as medical providers that we could try to help instill, even if it's just that 45 minutes, we see them in the clinic to help them even after their sport, realize that they are someone still important and can contribute to society in so many different ways. Well, one of the things is to start seeing what has meaning to them and interest because some athletes think they have no interest and have no meaning except sport, but more, but more, we all need some kind of meaning in our lives. And when we go from being really a good athlete to back, you know, back of the pack, it's a big adjustment, but it's kind of part of getting older and getting injured. But the fact that they're still doing it is really important, but I, it's trying to get them to think more beyond sport in terms of other interests. Some people say, I have none. It's like, well, what did you do before sport? <laughs> what kind of interest did you have as a kid? You know, what kind of things have you been curious about mm-hmm. that um, you haven't ever acted on? Um, yeah. So I'm trying to get them to think broader because one of the things, as you know, with that depression that can so often go with injured athletes, world narrows. And so I try to do these steps to, to broaden their world mm-hmm. so that they're looking at a variety of things, as opposed to just, I'm, I can't do the sport. Um, and how long can that take for an athlete to well, really a very long time? <laughs> when you say long, are we talking years? Yes. Yeah. I have a kid right now who's a rugby player and was a really good one, but he had a lot, a lot of mental health issues and um, he hasn't played rugby for a year because he's been injured. And then he went out and played probably too hard recently and now he's having issues again and it's like trying to ease him back in but there are other areas of his life like he used to have huge anger issues and he does but they shrank and he's actually handling things so differently even than like six months ago and see he's been with me and then not with me and with me and not with me and on and off on and off yeah and he's been a, a kid since he's um half Chinese and half white who had a lot of um, discrimination directed to him. So, you know, it's trying to get him to have discussions with differences with people. And he he actually had one the other day at college with um, another kid who was really being, he said that my client was being racist because he made some comment about white men. And it's like, wait a minute. You don't know what race. So he had a discussion with this guy and this guy calmed down and he calmed down and nobody got hurt. And he couldn't have done that six months ago. So it it does sound like that we as people need to come to understand that some of some of these things can take time. And it maybe it's a conversation that you need to have with the athlete and let them, like you said, it reassure them and be persistent, but also be realistic that this is not a thing that just turns around in a day or two. You might still have your ups and downs. Yep. 
Well, I know you briefly talked about depression, especially for injured athletes. I know when I was an athlete who was injured probably every season, every sport, because I played four sports in middle school, high school. Uh, So at times I certainly had those moments where I was very lonely, very sad. Besides sadness, depression, what are some limiting factors that you have seen in athletes that have recovered from their injury, but they're still struggling to perform at the level that they were, that they were at before their injury? Well, depression is one thing, but the anxiety, anxiety is a huge issue they struggle with because sometimes they expect themselves to come right back in where they were before. Mm -hmm. And um, with anxiety, it's really this issue of learning, having to learn to manage the anxiety better. And like one girl I worked with who was a swimmer had terrible anxiety before meets. Well, she got around all the people and she had anxiety issues anyhow. So then the anxiety would escalate. So what she started doing was, um, staying away from the group just before her event and then participating and her anxiety went way down in the process. Because I do think depression and anxiety are two of the big issues. And also one of the issues for women in particular that's huge is confidence. I think confidence for female athletes is much harder to come by than with men. And because we're much more self-conscious, you know, we're quick to judge ourselves about how we look and, and the world does the same thing to us, which is not helpful. Yeah. (laughs) On the note of anxiety, what strategies do you tell your athletes to help them get through that? Well, like I said, with this one girl, I had to remove themselves. I also am working with a young um, gymnast right now who we've started doing breathing in the morning. It's so funny because, you know, I'm so old school. I just think you can learn breathing and she is, you know, she started with like a three minutes and now she's up to seven minutes. No, she got up to seven minutes and now she's at 10 minutes and has noticed her anxiety declining. She also uses some power words for herself. What's that? um, Strong core. That's her mantra to herself that seemed to be helping. You know, reminding oneself that they have, you know, like some people like in running races, they start out with their shoulders very tense. And so what one of the tricks that I use is have them focus their attention on their shoulders when they start, particularly in long distance events, not so much of the short distance, but relaxing the shoulders, like for the first five or 10 minutes. And for long distance people, even up to 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um so that they relax, they look at the part of the body they're uncomfortable with and try to make it really relax and think of it as strong. You know, up to 80% of women in this country, all women, have discomfort with some part of their body, which is not true for men. You know, why is that? If you look at the media, Taiwo, what does the media do to women? They sexualize them. Yeah. They comment on their body and how they look and on their family and their kids. They don't do that to men. They don't even care about that. And they shouldn't care about it with women. And, you know, I think in this day and age, now that I've been involved in sports journalism, sometimes I can be watching a video about a female journalist 
providing insights about a player and in the comments it's flooded with things about her appearance that have nothing to do with what she's even talking about which can be quite disturbing but I think the reality is that that's probably not going anywhere anytime soon as long as humans are on this earth well I'd like to see it reduced let me tell you when Cam Newton I don't know if you remember this entrance Cam Newton was with Atlanta and there was a female journalist questioning him about his roots. He started laughing at her and everyone was like, what's up with that? And he goes, well, it just sounded funny from a woman asking me about my roots. And I mean, dead silence. Yeah. And, the, and he never apologized to her. And her comment was, I didn't think it was funny. This is my job. I take it quite serious. So those kinds of things don't yeah. really help. Um, Do you think we as people, whether that's us working a general eight to five job, we're not in these higher up positions. How do you think we can be a part of this systemic issue that you said it's really still kind of under under the covers for for a lot of organizations how can well i do see one of the things i do see that's happening is there is more uh training going on about sexual abuse and sexual harassment um and so we need to ramp up training for one thing we need to not be afraid of hard subjects because I teach in my class, I teach hard subjects. I teach about the Me Too movement and sexual abuse in the general sports psychology class. And it's really interesting because the girls participate in that discussion way more than the guys. Really? Yeah. And the substance abuse um, discussion was the hardest of all. How come? because people don't want to talk about it. Oh, I see. They don't want to, you know, and the thing is to, to go in recovery from using drugs and alcohol is so courageous. And yet we look at people like that askance still, as opposed to appreciate all the work they've had to do to get there and move ahead and reshape their lives because people who really stop that have to have a lifestyle change mm -hmm. that doesn't include drugs and alcohol. And it is, you know, I used to have an illusion that athletes didn't have drug and alcohol problems. <laughs> <laughs> what and an illusion I, that's a big one <laughs> and then I trained for my first marathon and the training group I was with people knew I taught it I taught at the alcohol and drug studies program at UC Berkeley and they would come up to me and just you know chugging beers like and I'm like whatever <laughs> whatever yeah well I'm curious because at the end of the day, we all, like you mentioned, we're all people mm -hmm. um, and we all are people that 
have something to say and also want to be heard and understood. What is the best advice that you've been given that you would give anyone when it comes to relating to people and really trying to put themselves in another person's shoe? Practice empathy, compassion for the suffering. Empathy is huge. But I think the big thing is to realize that a lot of people are suffering, particularly angry people. Nobody, you know, the people who go through their life angry just have no happiness. And practicing kindness, one of the things that went away with our last administration was kindness. And meanness became the norm. And I think we need to really be kind on a daily basis to our fellow humanity. Be kind to students, be kind to your students, be kind to your fellow workers. Um, And if they do crazy things, realize it's them and not you. Mm -hmm. And the best we can do is just try to step back and, and have some compassion. I like that. Kindness, compassion, empathy, all great stuff. You know, if we all were more like that, this would be such a happier world for sure. Yeah. Well, I have a little saying that I made a motto for 2021. It's on my signature. It says, keep kind in mind. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take a lot of effort to be kind. It takes way more effort to be mean and angry absolutely well well i am so grateful for all of your insights and really thought that you provided some helpful strategies for really medical professionals when they're interacting whether it's injured athletes youth specifically female athletes and really just finding ways as people we can best relate and help um really understand where someone else is coming from. So thank you so much for your time. And you you know, you are in San Francisco. So maybe one of these days I can just walk into one of your classrooms and sit in for one. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) 